The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Gravity Podcast. Um, Matt, welcome to you. Thank you. And to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Christy's not with us today, unfortunately. She's dissertating. She is dissertating. She uh, learned that she had to do some more research on one of her chapters and Mm -hmm. is doing the research. So, yeah. We've got something special, though, in store. We do. A little summer. A little summer special. It's kind of a Christmas in July. Oh yeah. This is, you guys are going to love the present that we got for you listeners. One of the most listened to series we've ever done. I think it's the most listened to series we've ever done was. It was crazy. Yeah. Was uh, something we did on critical race theory a few years back with Dr. Nathan Cartagena, who teaches at Wheaton College. Mm-hmm. And we decided that I've listened to this four part series. I don't know three or four times all the way through. Yeah. And we decided that a lot of our listeners may be new to our podcast or don't have time to listen through the hundreds of past episodes. We decided here in the middle of summer, while you're on sabbatical, you're mm-hmm. going on vacation every other day. It seems like Ben. Yeah. I do have a lot of vacations planned. We keep vacating. So. Um, that we would leave in the place, replay this podcast and do, um, yeah, listen to it two years later. You, you remember a f- couple of years ago, Critical race theory was the big bugaboo. It yeah. was the yeah. thing that people were taking aim at. Uh, now, now it's still there's still policies, legislators, uh, educational, uh, school board kind of things, kerfuffles that are dealing with critical race theory. But you'll notice that the 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 rhetoric has shifted towards transgender people, transgenderism and drag queens, right? right? So that's now maybe more front they're, they're and center. They're the bad, bad guys or the, the scapegoats, the current scapegoats. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but there was so much work Nathan did in this series to walk through the history of the United States when it comes to race and white supremacy. Yeah. That no matter if critical race theory is in the news or not, it is complete. People pay for this education, yeah, and you're going to get it for free. Yep. Yeah. You if might you, have all to. All you got to do is tune in. Yep. You might have to listen to a Metamucil commercial here and there, uh, in the middle of it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Our, whatever our ad platform decides, but still, yeah. I, I want to say too that uh, I've I've heard from uh, people who found our podcast because they went through an anti-racism curriculum, and this four-part series was in an anti-racism curriculum. Yeah. I've had people message me who are taking college classes and this four part series was a part of their required uh 
quote, reading or listening for the college class. So uh, a lot of people have found gravity through this series, and a lot of people outside of gravity have mm-hmm. recognized the incredible value that Dr. Cartagena uh, provided for us on this yeah. series. Yeah, yeah. He, he gave us a lot of his time. It's extremely generous. Um, and, and just to, like, so... During the kerfuffle, you know, everybody's like, what is critical race theory? And it was, you know, it, it was definitely being weaponized, um, you know, as a, as basically, you know, uh, who was the guy who tweeted about it? He actually just Christopher Rufo. Yeah, yeah. It was like a, a strategist, political strategist for the Republican Party who just said, like, yeah, our goal is for anything crazy that anybody hears about to be labeled critical race theory. And they sort of like poison the water, essentially. Um, and the irony was that critical race theory, that, like it actually is something that <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're committed to white supremacy, you should be afraid of because mm-hmm. essentially what it does is it it goes through uh, the history, uh, specifically the history of um, law, and it's a it's a law discipline, yeah. Um, and looking at U.S. law and discerning sort of the racist threads in U.S. law. So basically, so Dr. Cartagena is a critical race uh, scholar. It's like what he studies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's incredible because he he walks us through um, just so much. I mean, I I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. Like when we were recording this, I was just like, oh, oh, okay. We just... We just kept going and we we're like, well, we have to make this. It was going to be a one-parter and uh, turned into four parts. It so. did not. We could not fit it into Couldn't one part. Yeah. So anyway, I think it'll be interesting to kind of uh, revisit this two years later. We, we were first recorded these in May of 2021. And um, they, yeah, there's four parts. The first part uh, is basically an introduction to critical race theory. What is it? Second part is... At the, so parts two and three are an application of critical race theory. Um, and Nathan Cartagena walks us through the uh, history of white supremacy in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, looking at various laws. Uh, extremely eye-opening. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no, there's no way, after listening to this, like, this is just like, this. he just like is quoting like, like laws in the United States. So it's not like it's controversial. <laughs> It's nope. not like speculation. It's like, these are the laws that were on the books. And he just walks us through. And after listening to this, there's no way that you'd be able to say that America was founded on anything other than white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, that is our legacy. And then part four is all about like, why should Christians care about this? What does this matter for the church? Um, why, you know, yeah. How do we apply this? Like, what does the gospel have to do with this? So, yeah. So anyway, that's what we're doing. We're going to release these four episodes over the next three weeks. So. Yeah. And I've uh, just, got, I sent you two links, Ben. One is a New Yorker article about what Christopher Rufo did. And then another is a Media Matters article that just has the screenshots of mm. the tweets. I'm not sure we even talked about these in our series. I don't think we did. Series. But uh, maybe by way of uh, last, last words before we get into this, I'll just mm. read you oh, yeah. this Christopher Rufo tweet. He says, um, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think, quote, critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. And that gets quote tweeted. And somebody says, Christopher Rufo has become one of the go-to critics of critical race theory. Here he is essentially giving away the game. 
For Rufo, it is all about branding, and the audacity of his charlatanry is breathtaking. And then Rufo quote tweets that and says, yes, I envisioned a strategy. Turn the brand critical race theory toxic. And despite having virtually no resources compared to my opponents, willed it into being through writing and persuasion. Oh, gosh. So, um, look, uh, you know, this, not to, we got to get out of here, but this is how fascism works. Yeah. This is post-truth propaganda that is seeking to weaponize uh, a, a tool used yeah. for liberation to make it be a tool of oppression. Yeah. This is how fascism works. And in 2023, friends, you don't have to tell you this, we're still in a place that we're exceedingly vulnerable to mm. fascist propaganda like this. So yep. open yep. your ear holes, get ready. Get ready for the fire hose. There's two different metaphors there. I know. It, you don't want the fire hose. You don't want water in your ears. Probably. You don't. No. Yeah. Anyway, get ready, f- yeah, get ready, get ready for f- some good things to come to you through mm-hmm. this audio program. Let's get How out that? of here. How's that? All right. Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you all. Yes. Nathan is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and he teaches on race and justice and political philosophy. He also is the faculty advisor for a student group that's working to enhance Christian unity and celebrate Latina and Latino cultures there at Wheaton. Nathan, uh, what else do we need to know about you? <laughs> well, let me start by, uh, again, saluting the great work you all are doing at Gravity Leadership. Uh, I'm honored to join you all. I mm. also think it's important to acknowledge what ancestral lands one is on. So I am coming from the ancestral lands of the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Padawaname. Uh, I'll note that I am multiracialized. My mom's family are what in Spanish we'd call Anglos. They are coming from the U.S. South places like North Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Hills of Tennessee. My dad's entire family, they come from Boricua or Puerto Rico. And uh, though I was born in South Carolina, uh, my family moved from there to Philadelphia and then to New Jersey. So I spent most of my life in in New Jersey. And one of the reasons that's going to be important is the racialization practices in the Northeast are different Mm -hmm. than they would be in other places. So one of the reasons uh, I became interested in race scholarship is because I was trying to understand myself. So as we sometimes mm, say, yes. the research was the me search. And <laughs> I was uh, routinely racialized as black growing up, even though I'm, I'm, I'm quite light skinned. And part of this has to do with the historic linkings of the Puerto Rican community with the African American community in places like New York, New York City, New Jersey. So again, the, the, the location matters. But I, I, I'd note that because of that racialization and my, my in fact, embracing it, uh, there were lots of tensions that came because, again, my mom's family, they're from the South. My mom's parents were born and raised in the Jim Crow South. They were socialized into mm-hmm. that form of Anglo-white supremacy. And uh, perhaps your your listeners don't know, but uh, racism, forms of white supremacy are also a, a major problem in Latino and Latina communities. And so <laughs> when I was talking to my abuela and my abuelo, my grandparents down in, in Puerto Rico, Barricua, and I would say, oh, yeah, you know what? I, I'm black. 
they, they weren't too pleased. <laughs> we could say they weren't too pleased at all. So I was attempting to understand how is it that I'm being racialized black in some places, I'm being racialized white in some places, I'm being racialized as a non-white Latino in other places, and it was, it was chaos. And I, I found that there were few people that had helpful answers. Hmm. And it really wasn't until I was at Texas A&M in my first year of my master's program that that I started to encounter some of these helpful answers. And the person that helped me uh, to, to get onto the road of having more understanding about the world that I was inhabiting was Dr. Tommy J. Curry, who was at Texas A&M. Now he is at Edinburgh. Uh, he's, he's founded the first ever uh, black male studies institute at Edinburgh. But he's the one who, in fact, said, well, given some of your uh, given some of your interest, and I shared that I was from Puerto Rico, uh, I, I, he's like, yeah, I think you might find critical race theory interesting. Hmm. And I, I think he just knew because of the unique relationship that Puerto Rico has to the United States, uh, Puerto Rico being the oldest colony in the world. Um, it's a place that has taxation without representation. You can't, if you live on the island, vote for president, vice president, no members of Congress, etc. And it's become um, a major place of exploitation. But it was, in fact, designed to be that going all the way back until uh, the, the, the Treaty of Paris that the United States signs with, with Spain. So I think Dr. Curry knew there are going to be a lot of interesting legal connections. And he knew that critical race theorists uh, were paying close attention to racialization practices. Dr. Curry is actually a student of uh, Derek Bell, who's often seen as the founding father of critical race theory. So he said, yeah, you, you should be interested in these. Read these people. Don't read those people. Let me know if you have any questions. So that was the, the beginning of my interest in thinking about critical race theory and race scholarship in general. So again, it was, it, it was, it was research that followed from my attempts to understand myself, my family, the histories, the reasons why, though, for example, my mama or grandma uh, loved me dearly. Uh, I, was, I was in many senses very close to her. Problems of white supremacy always surfaced in our conversations. They'd always they, they, they'd come up in, in unexpected times. There were occasions where my, my mama would ask why I had so many black friends, for example. There were mm. times where she would uh, suggest that the Bible con uh, condemns having such friends. It was it was wild, and I didn't understand it. And and my parents weren't at at, at that point equipped to help me to understand it. And the church that I was attending wasn't helping me understand it. So again, um, in an effort to understand myself in the world. Uh, I, I started reading and, and, and digesting race scholarship. So those, I think, are some background uh, details uh, to note. Yeah, that's great, Nathan. <clears throat> we are having you on this podcast because you have studied critical race theory, and it's um, it's kind of a big deal right now. Um, maybe, maybe this is the first you're hearing about it, but uh, critical race theory, or CRT, which we're going to give a brief definition of this week, and we're going to really unpack next week. Um, but... Um, Critical race theory has become sort of a divisive, a dividing line among Christians. Some people are see it as a very helpful tool. Some people see it as uh, the greatest danger to the uh, to the Western Church. You know, since I don't know the last boogeyman. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Nathan, uh, before we get to maybe a really simple, I know it's hard to define critical race theory because it's such a diverse and variegated field. Um, but before we do that, you mentioned the church you went to as a, as a kid didn't really help you understand these questions about who am I and how do I understand myself? Could you give us a brief sketch of what your faith was like growing up? Sure. So both my parents are Christians, so I was born and raised in a Christian home. Uh, their parents were also Christians, and going back, their parents were Christians. So Christians going way, way, way back for, for generations. Uh, because 
of my mom's experiences growing up where her parents would go to various sorts of, uh, of churches. They didn't have a denominational affiliation. They were often just trying to go to a, a congregation that they thought was faithfully preaching the Bible. And my dad, he was actually a, a child of a, of a father who was in the military. My abuelo ends up joining the military in part to try to get out of generational problems and poverty. His parents died when he was really young, so he was raised by my tío Ramón, so my uncle Ramón. And often down in Puerto Rico, uh, when you are in the position that my abuelo was in, it's either you go to trade school or you're going to join the military. These are the options. So he, he joins the military. So that means that my, my, my dad, my abuela, my, my uncle, my tío, uh, they, they moved all over the United States, depending on what the Air Force had. So they, they didn't also have really strong denominational connections. They were just trying to find uh, churches where they thought people were faithfully preaching. Uh, the the Bible. So this is relevant because when when we settle in New Jersey, my parents don't have strong denominational ties, but they want to find a place that's faithfully proclaiming the word, and so they end up settling on a conservative Baptist church. That, in terms of the um, the members, was actually uh, it was kind of like a multiracial, multi ethnic congregation. But at the at the leadership, the majority of people were racialized white, and they didn't have much of an understanding of well, they certainly weren't robust. Let's say. Uh, anti-racist. And in fact, uh, when I say that I didn't get much help on, on race matters, not only did I not get much help, uh, but when when it was clear that race was in view, it was often in ways that were maintaining, maintaining forms of white supremacy. I'll just, so I'll just give you two examples of what I mean. I remember one time in an attempt uh, to defend the power of, of the gospel, a leader said, now imagine you're in a dark alley and a bunch of black men walk towards you. So the playing on Yes. racist fears about black males. Yeah. And, and then the person said, now imagine you somehow find out that they're leaving a Bible study. Won't you feel better? So that, the, the, so, I mean, it, it, you get, you get the fear of the black well, male, this, the racist tropes about how violent and dangerous they are. And then how the, the gospel in some ways civilized them and, and, and gets all this, this, this nastiness out of them. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of thing wow. would come up. But there was also a time we were yeah. at a summer camp and I kept noticing that the youth leaders were paying very close attention to the few of us that were there that were racialized minorities. And so I ended up asking one of the youth leaders why this was the case. And the youth leader said, well, some people, some people need more watching than others. Mm. And so what I knew was there were, there were racist ideas about our sexuality and how promiscuous we would or would not be. Hmm. So those things would surface. Um, But I'd also say that one of the the marks of this congregation was that people earnestly loved the Lord, but there were there were powerful strains of not only forms of uh, of white supremacy and racism that, that would surface in ways like I've, I've just mentioned, but there was also some some pretty serious anti intellectualism. Not with everybody, but it, mm-hmm. it was certainly there. So I ended up going and doing my undergrad at Grove City College, which is is oh, yeah. uh, known for having a pretty Presbyterian slash Reformed uh, biblical studies department. And it ends up that that was one of the things that I majored in uh, biblical theological studies, also majored in philosophy. But uh, my time there involved me spending some, uh, uh, well, developing a mentor relationship with Dr. Ian Duguid, who's now at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly. Uh, he's an Old Testament guy, specialty is Ezekiel. And he writes on other, other books of the Bible, too, of course. But um, through spending time with him, I moved towards the reform trajectory. And so I'd say this that that was that happened oh, probably my my freshman year. I had been interested in reform theology, but I didn't know much about covenant theology and things like this until I until I was at Grove City. And then after Grove City, between then and the time that I finished my PhD at Baylor, 
I became what's, uh, what people like Douglas F. Kelly or um, J. Todd Billings call Reformed Catholics. So the, the, the Catholic here is lower KC and its emphasis on the universal church. And, and frankly, that, that didn't just fit some of my theological experience, training, we might say, uh, because I did a dissertation on Thomas Aquinas. But it also fit my experience of being in very different racialized churches, being member of very different racialized families and seeing how different the cultures were, how different some of the theologies were, but also seeing, OK, you know, these people are Christian. They're, they're going to be jots and tittles I'm, I'm strongly disagreeing with, but no, I see the spirit at work here and I sense the spirit's present there, uh, etc. So I, I, I've often had a, a pretty capacious conception uh, of the church. So that, that will surface time and again as we dialogue about CRT, sure. uh, because I, I'm one who, like many Reformed people, uh, certainly holds the Bible in really high regard, but it's also going to hold in high regard what we might call uh, general revelation and the ways in which human beings, whether they're Christians or not, know things. And I, and I just know that's not that's not true of every tradition yeah. uh, that's part of the church, but it, it's definitely it's definitely true of me. Mm, that's great, Nathan. Well, I want to return to, and I think the historical context you're going to give us for why a tool like CRT is important, I want to return to um, these Bible-believing, well-meaning, uh, Jesus-loving Christians. How can they be so racist and not know it? I want to return to that because I think it's the perplexing thing for many white people. Many white people don't want to be racist. They don't want to have racist ideas. And it's uh, they get angry or frustrated or irritated when they realize that they don't know what they don't know about it. Um, so I, I want to, I think that's one of the things that your historical sketch will help us have a greater appreciation for is how could that happen? How could that happen to good people, right? Good people. Uh, but first, um, I, critical race theory. I know, I know you could spend 40 minutes talking about it, but could you give us a working, simple definition so that when you, when we mention it or talk about it, people have something to correlate it to maybe like 60 seconds, 90 seconds. Yeah, I, I'd like to do that. And, and here my, my time with Thomas Aquinas is going to show. So I want to help your reader, your, your audience by distinguishing three senses of critical race theory, three senses of critical race theory. So there's what uh, me as a Thomas will call CRT proper. What was what was critical race theory at its origins and, and what is in, in the most important sense properly CRT? So here's a, here's a definition. Critical race theory is a legal movement aimed at understanding, resisting, and remediating how U.S. law on legal institutions such as law schools have fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy. So it's a movement that's going to house multiple traditions. Those traditions themselves will house multiple and competing theories, as the traditions sometimes are going to be competing, sometimes even inconsistent. So you have diversity, not just in terms of the racialization of the members, but in terms of the traditions and, and the theories and the, and the methods that people will employ. Uh, it, it's connected to law and, and, and efforts to understand how U.S. law specifically perpetuates forms of racism and, and white supremacy. So so then, for instance, like how does Brown versus the Board of Education, how does that law or that ruling, how does that perpetuate systemic injustice? Right. So there are going to be questions about how, did, how does that ruling fit within the broader legal history of the United States as, and we'll say much more about this, but as a white nation, intentionally designed to be white empire, white republic, um, 
we'll again we'll say more about it a bit but okay what was that how is that ruling breaking from certain things that have gone before mm-hmm. like for example the u.s had before that through plessy v ferguson um federal racial apartheid yes. so it's not just the south africa's of the world that had racial apartheid i know the united states had racial apartheid uh through plessy v ferguson but in fact the, the united states has racial apartheid before that especially if you pay close attention to the laws and the practices the United States is going to establish as it relates to indigenous communities. Again, we'll say, we'll say more about that. But then there are questions about, okay, well, once that decision comes, how does the U.S. implement the decision? And then what subsequent laws and court decisions inform how that decision is going to operate? So how much power do, do subsequent laws and decisions grant that decision? Or how much do they whittle it down? And this is going to be very important because one of the things that critical race theorists will highlight is you often get the following pattern. You get reform followed by entrenchment. Yes. So I will give you two, I'll give you three examples that that should help your audience. So one, you think about after the civil, the U S civil war, you get reconstruction period and it's like, hooray, this is going to work. And then it comes crashing down with the Hayes compromise and and the withdrawal of federal troops. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty steep trajectory from that to plus V Ferguson. So reform entrenchment. Then you think of Brown v. Board. Okay, it looks like we got some reform, but wait a second. Even 10 years after that, we're still getting certain forms of civil rights legislation, 64, 65, for example. So you go, whoa, whoa, what's going on in that 10-year period? And one of the things that you find is there's further entrenchment. So for example, Nixon ends up putting four justices on the court who are, um, we might say, politically conservative, but they're not just politically conservative. They're picking up, and, and I'm going to say much more about this in our second interview, but they're picking up on what are known as Barry Goldwater's tactics of mm-hmm. maintaining racism and white supremacy, but but not always being explicit about it. Yeah, coding. So you it. use what are known as dog whistle politics. Yes. So these are people who are, who are, many of these judges are going to be down with that sort of stuff, and you're going to get the, the development of all sorts of institutions that are going to work to maintain what's going to be seen as Western civilization, which is often a coded term, and other forms of, of white supremacy. So it's like, hooray, things are getting better. But then as you watch from Nixon to Reagan, you get the development of all sorts of, of again, dog whistles, racist tropes, racist strategies. Uh, and, and so it's another form of retrenchment. And then you could think of something like this. More recently, you have President Obama, the first, uh, the first black president, the first African-American president, immediately followed by the forms of racist entrenchment that we're seeing, uh, that we saw with President Trump and, and, and the, violent, the rise of violent white nationalism. Et cetera, et cetera. So looks like reform right into to, to retrenchment. And um, again, there's actually a lot that I would uh, offer as a critique of Obama. But the, these are the sorts of things yes. that, that critical racists are paying attention to and specifically asking, how is the law operating through those forms of, of entrenchment? And now a word from a sponsor. All right, let's get back into our conversation. It seems to me that the... This is a helpful corrective to the myth we tell ourselves, which is we had segregated schools until Brown v. Board, and now it's better. Or we had no civil rights for black people until the civil rights legislation in 1964, and now they have civil rights. Right? right? Is is that what CRT is trying to do, is trying to complexify a very simple mythological understanding? Yes. So that's that's part of it. So the the, the founder, Derek Bell, he actually, uh, he's a— Korean War veteran goes to to law school. He ends up working with the NAACP, so he's he's actually close with Medgar Evers. He's close with uh, with Thurgood Marshall, and he ends up doing he ends up doing integ- um, 
desegregation cases down in the South. And there are times where he's, he's with Medgar Evers and they're in a house. And, and that while they're trying to sleep, he's bells on the couch. There's somebody with a shotgun defending them so that they can get some sleep. So that like bell was in the struggle in a, in a, in a, in a thick way. But when he decided he was going to do desegregation work, one of his mentors says, well, you know, it, we're pretty much just at mop up duty. There's not gonna be much to do. So Bell's like, oh, okay, well, I'm still going to go down and do this as long as I can. And as the years go by, Bell's like, wait a second, it's not getting much better. And he's seeing the extreme forms of violent white res resistance. So the Bull Connors of the world, for example, uh, the George Wallaces of the world. And then he sees the ways in which the courts are working hmm. to what he's going to end up calling establish a kind of interest convergence, where it's like, well, we'll give as much uh, power, rights, privilege to racialized minorities as the racialized white majority is going to is going to allow us to do, and and that's going to be connected to visions of international competition with 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 communist countries uh, is is often how it's going to be presented, but especially for example, uh, Russia. Yes. So th yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot that's going on there, but they are trying to unpack that. But one of the things I want to stress is most of the founding CRT folks are racialized minorities who are going to be in some of those first. Uh, efforts to establish things like affirmative action. So they're going to be some of the first people in places like a Harvard and, and, and a Virginia law school, et cetera, et cetera. And they're looking at this going, where, where are the fellow racialized minority students? Where are the fellow racialized minority faculty? What's going on with the hiring practices? How mm -hmm. come all of these things that, uh, how come so many of the practices are, are specifically designed to support these people, but not these other people? And this is happening in terms of class and it's happening in terms of race and it's happening in terms of gender. So it's, a, it's an, an effort to understand how legal practices, legal institutions are fostering these forms of white supremacy that, that they're going to get, uh, get that critical race theory gets up and running. So, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, it sounds like they came, they developed a sociological tool to help them make sense of their experiences and their life, much like you came, you found CRT to help <laughs> you make sense of your experiences in your life. Yeah. 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 So I, I'll add a little bit to that. So, so somebody like Derek Bell, is drawing heavily from people like Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. He's Bell is connected to what Cedric Robinson will call the Black Radical tradition. So it's it's an effort to, to pay close attention to the broader African diaspora and, and say, okay, how in this country do we see white supremacy promoting forms of uh, racial subordination, racial subjugation, racial oppression, racial exploitation? So Bell is extending insights that you're going to get from Du Bois into his his legal practice. But then somebody like Robert A. Williams, who's of the of the Lumbee tribe, which is still to this day not a federally recognized tribe, he's hmm. going to be asking questions like, okay, as a student of Derrick Bell that's learning so much about the connections between um, law and, and race, how do I take all of these deep insights that I have from various indigenous communities? And how do I, ex how do I apply some of what I'm learning from Bell and other groups to try to care for my communities and try to promote their rights? So he's going in that direction. And then you get somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, who's also going to be operating out of the black radical tradition in various senses. So she she wanted to get to study with Bell, but Bell ends up leaving Harvard Law School and goes to be a dean at the University of, of Oregon when 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 Crenshaw is uh, is, at, is at Harvard. But while she's there, one of the things that she notes is, okay, not only do we have to ask questions about what's going on with race, but how are race and gender, we might say, uh, um, intersections and overlaps, how are they performing unique challenges in forms of subordination, forms of, um, frankly, legal blind spots. So her, mm -hmm. her first piece on intersectionality is an effort to understand, for example, why you'll get a range of laws designed to protect white female 
chastity and sexuality. But there are no similar laws for black female chastity sexuality mm-hmm. so you go what what in the world is happening here mm-hmm. so, and 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 she's she's highlighting those forms of uh, of legal not only white supremacy but now they're, they're they're clear forms of gendered racism and of course other people are going to say yep you'll find some of those things applying to to men not identical but similar but yeah so these are some of the concerns that they have um this might be a perfect time actually to segue into the second sense so we i gave the the crt proper one of the things i want to highlight is in the early 90s there are, especially in education, uh, the discipline of education, people finding CRT scholarship because the CRT movement officially launches in the summer of, of 1989. So this is still relatively new, but it, it, it officially launches in the summer of, of 1989. Again, all the people connected to it are, are, are doing uh, law, except except Cornell West, who's just everywhere. <laughs> right? Cornell West has got his hands in everything. It's amazing. Um, as certain education scholars find this, they're like, oh, there are insights in this movement. There are ideas that we would like to have and we want to apply. So this is the part, this is what I call CRT in the derivative senses. Hmm. Um, so the question that you ask or that I'm going to ask as a student of, of the Palestinian scholar Edward Said is how does CRT as the movement and some of the, some of the theories, some of the methods, how do they travel into other disciplines? And what you find is in education, for example, some people like, Gloria Lance and Billings are saying, let's pay close attention to the law. Let's get steeped in, in CRT proper. And then we're going to do more of an effort to, to think through how some of these insights relate to education. Other people are perhaps making extended stays, but, but, but they're going to want to what they'll call reinvent. And it's in part because of certain, uh, certain education theories that they're studying. So for example, Daniel Salzano, who's, who's at UCLA, he's going to say, yep, I, I find Bell really helpful, but because I'm a student of Paulo Freire, who is a Brazilian Christian and educator, he said, well, Paulo says what we have to do is reinvent the ideas that we inherit to make sure that we're, what we're doing is addressing the actual conditions of our communities. So he's open about the fact that he takes CRT and importantly reinvents it. So what he's doing, though it's it's CRT in an important sense, it's different than what you're getting Lanson Billings doing, and it's certainly different than what you're going to be doing, what you're going to see somebody like Derek Bell doing. So I'm going to be asking questions about how it travels. And, and I'll say one more thing about that. When I was first talking to Dr. Tommy Curry about CRT, one of the things that he said is CRT, as it's, as it's uh, been brought into philosophy, has been gentrified. Hmm. And so he, he helped me to see that scholars like Shannon Sullivan were taking the moniker CRT, frankly, just emptying it out and doing what they wanted to do as race <laughs> scholars. And so when you look at their text, you will find not a single citation, quotation, or naming mm-hmm. of a CRT author, text, etc. Yeah. But it gets labeled CRT, and then and then you know you get critical uh, race studies that, that that comes later in philosophy or critical philosophy of race, etc. There are a whole bunch of things that get similar. That's why you have to be very careful uh, when you're talking about CRT because some people want to just lump all of that under it, and, and we shouldn't because they're they're not equivalent. Uh, so so. Dr. Curry helped me to see that it's going to be important to interrogate how any manifestation of CRT in another academic discipline, in another movement, does or does not relate to the sorts of things that I'm calling CRT proper. So I'm still going to grant the sort of things that we're seeing in in education or in philosophy are CRT, but they're a CRT in a different sense. Yeah. And and sometimes it's a supremely extended sense. Like, well, (laughs) this person will on occasion quote Derek Bell. 
but there's that's about it like there's there's yeah. no real robust sense in which the person has identified with the CRT movement, has really made an extended stay with the authors, sees herself or himself trying to extend the insights of that movement. Um, but unfortunately for, for, for many people, that, that it's not to the point where they think that anybody is doing any kind of race scholarship or believes, for example, that systemic racism exists is just a CRTer. And that is, that's really far from the truth. Yeah. So I, if I could just give you one example. Um, there's an important sense in which Mark Knoll is a kind of race scholar when he when he's working on the Civil War as a theological crisis, hmm. because he's writing on race in the United States. He's writing on how forms of biblicism are completely failing to adjudicate massive political and ecclesiastical questions, and and he's so he's thinking through white supremacy and racialized chattel slavery. But there is no important sense in which Mark Knoll is a critical race theorist. Right. He 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 wouldn't have identified as one. But if you ask, well, are you doing race scholarship? He'd say, yes. If you ask, would well, you believe in systemic racism? Yes. In fact, I'm studying it, it but, yes. but in this 19th century form. Um, so I, I want to give that as an example because it, it helps. I, I think it might help your, your listeners see, oh, whoa, that, that's right. In fact, a lot of people were doing race scholarship going way before the Mark Knowles of the world. Um, of course, like somebody like Frederick Douglass, I'll just give an yes. example. He's doing what I would would call race scholarship, no doubt about it. He's 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 decrying the forms of white Christian nationalism. He's decrying the forms of what we now would call systemic racism. And he's doing that in, in the mid nineteenth century. So we we really want to we want to pause, I think, for some of for some of the for some of your audience and ask if you are the sort of person who's who thinks that any talk about racism and white supremacy and, and, and ideas about whiteness just has to equal CRT. You want to ask, what happened to your, your, why did you not get exposed to all these other forms of race scholarship that are making similar claims, not identical, mm -hmm. they're, they're perhaps not studying the, the ways in which law is promoting white supremacy, but why has this not been on your radar in the same way? And this is going to get connected to uh, something that critical race theorist Kendall Thomas calls organized forgetting, organized <laughs> forgetting. So it's the ways in which institutions and broader, uh, practices in a society put certain things before us so that we know them and then hide other things from us so that yes. we don't know them yes. and every society is 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 engaging in forms of organized reading so that if you go to a seminary for example you let's say you do an mdiv you're like okay i'm here for three or four years these are the things i need to know to be a pastor this is this is what you're you know this is implicit mm -hmm. thought so if you don't ever get a class on race like a whole class on race and white supremacy and colonialism mm -hmm. and maybe at places like Westminster, Philadelphia, you might not even get a full class period. Not not just a course, but like you might not even get a full class period, a whole hour or three hours on discussions of race. Yeah. Well, then it just doesn't seem like it's that relevant. So right. notice what's going on. The people that are training you are suggesting it's not relevant. The people that were training them are suggesting it's not relevant. You probably have gone to churches and nobody was suggesting that racism and white supremacy were, were a major problem. They might say, well, those things are bad, but they're not saying that they're major problems that have, have greatly shaped or, or manifested in the United States. And then you go in and you're doing pastoral ministry. And if those are your views, more than likely your congregants aren't thinking that these things are a big problem. So mm -hmm. see what happens. You get this stuff passed down yeah. so that, for example, there are times where I, I talk to in many senses, highly educated, reform people, and, and they don't know anything about the doctrine of discovery, for example. Mm. And, and I'm going to say a little bit about this uh, in a few moments, but I go, how do you not know anything about this? And when I say, for example, well, it's actually the church that's had one of the most important influences in, in spreading white supremacy across the whole globe. Mm -hmm. They're like, but, but white supremacy is the KKK, so how did the church? And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. no. no. <laughs> white supremacy was around 400 years plus before the KKK. 
Yeah. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they yeah. might think, for example, that racism is just about hatred rather than think of all these forms of benevolent racism that you're going to see time and again in the 19th century, uh, especially those of us from Puerto Rico. Oh, we, we know about how the, the white mm-hmm. empire likes to talk about being the, the white savior for us, oh, you, you mongrel people that are just so backwards and barbarous, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But they don't know about this. So yeah. um, for, for many pastors in particular, pastors and priests, excuse me, they're, they're like, what? How? How is it that I don't know any of these things? And right. this gets into the systemic and institutional realities. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. So this gets back to that opening question you raised, Matt, about mm-hmm. how, how is it that so many people don't know these things? As I was saying, I was, in fact, in New Jersey in a, in a multiracialized congregation in terms of the members. And these things just weren't ever coming up. Yeah. So if if you then have the experiences that I'm having, you're like, racism is a huge problem. I got, I'm got i in sixth grade, and I have a teacher flat out telling me that I don't belong in this honors English class. It was my first ever honors English class. I'm in sixth grade again, and and it's it's week one. And she's like, you don't belong in this class. You're only here for racial diversity numbers. It's my task to get you out of here. Ugh. I'm mad. And that, wow. dude, she did not let up on that idea the whole year. The whole year. So that class was held. From week mm-hmm. one all mm-hmm. the way through the rest of the 180 something days that we had in public school, yeah. and this is a public school. Right? Yeah. This is a public school, and in New Jersey, we're not we're not talking about so, the deep south. The back the, yeah, this right. is the deep south. So I, I, when I looked at that, as I was experiencing those things, I didn't mm-hmm. have people to, to to talk to, and yeah. if I make a righteous noise against the forms of racist oppression and abuse and i'm experiencing one of the things that i'm going to hear is oh that doesn't have to do with the gospel what are you talking about oh no that it just it may be a bad apple etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. Well, you can think that when you have these other forms of organized forgetting and, and social realities that are that are making yeah. it hard we'll be right back the gravity podcast is sponsored by the gravity formation course our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. So let me see. Let me see if I'm if I'm uh, picking up what you're laying down here, uh, Nathan. Um, so critical race theory. I'm I'm trying to sum, summarize because this this is com- it's way more complex than most yep. of the people who think it's a boogeyman. Like right. it's just a you know like like you said it, it. There's people who empty it out. They just grab the name and they empty it out yep. of its meaning, and they just it's like a scary. Look at the scary boogeyman. It's modern. It's you know um, yep. talks about race. It's scary. So they, they don't really know, understand what it is. But in, in its essence, there is this um, way that critical race theory is helpful in helping us see what has been obfuscated, like the, this organizational forgetting, I think you called it. Yep. Like the, the, it helps us see how white supremacy works mm-hmm. um, because white supremacy works best when it's hidden from us because we think of it as such a 
bad thing. And so we'd never want to be, like you said earlier, Matt, like we'd never want to be like, we don't want to be a racist. Hardly anybody wants to be a racist, except, yes. you know, if you're the, like the Proud Boys or something <laughs> like that, who take pride in it. But like most people who do carry around racist ideas, they don't know where they came from. They don't right. know that they are racist ideas and they don't know the harm that they perpetuate when they think, you know, I got to yeah. get this kid out of my class. Yeah. He's only here for one reason and I know what it is. And so, so CRT can function as a way of helping us see how white supremacy works. Yeah. And I, I was thinking too, Ben, just to tag on to that, when, when Nathan, when you talked about organized forgetting, mm-hmm. uh, my mind immediately went to the, the Capitol insurrection on January 6th yeah. and how I heard over and over and over again from politicians and leaders the phrase, this is not who we are. Mm. Right. And it it was almost like, you know what I heard? I'm getting chills to even talk about this because it's so crazy. I I hear that as pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. From the Wizard of Oz? Yes, from the Wizard of Oz. Um, And that's part of the myth that we tell ourselves anytime there's an eruption of the real, anytime who we really are is on display. It's like we, we, we cover each other's eyes and we say, no, that's not who we are. That's not who yeah. we are. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and if I can add to... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, you I, go I ahead. I want to add to something that Ben said, um, and this is, in fact, going to take us to the third the third, the third sense. I'll make sure I, re, I re, revisit the other two in a moment. But critical race theorists are engaged in an interdisciplinary mode of, mm-hmm. in, uh, of thinking through how white supremacy and law get connected. So... One of, the, one of the things that often cracks me up about some of the discussion about CRT is I, I think I, I probably couldn't be a CRT scholar if I hadn't spent several years with Thomas Aquinas because Thomas has such a, an enormous scope, but he's also outrageously fine-grained. And you see this throughout his, 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 his masterwork, the, the Summa Theologiae. It's, it's just, it's like, all right, so we're going to think about creation. We're going to think about God. We're going to think about angels, what angels do or do not have, what's an angel's will like, et cetera, et cetera. All, you know, getting all the way down to what kind of passions do human beings have? What are the different species of fears that a human being has? What are the different mm-hmm. virtues that, that, that perfect them? Okay, let's now think about Christ and that's in the third part, et cetera, et cetera. So it was huge in scope, but also tremendously fine-grained. It's a similar sort of thing with CRT. I mean, people are drawing from literatures in history hmm. some of its u.s history some of its latin american history some of its um asian history right? some of its middle eastern history all sorts of stuff and they're and they're drawing from colonialism decolonial scholarship post-colonial scholarship they're, they're thinking with theologians so some one of the founding pieces in, in crt is is a reflection on uh, dr reverend martin luther king jr's theology okay how, how do we think about his conceptions of law it's it's, it's sociology psychology it's all over so when I, when I hear people think that they, they have a real robust understanding of it, I'm going, I, I get paid to spend most of my days reading, writing, and teaching this stuff. And I'm still learning every single day. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, if I want to do justice to the part of CRT, it's about federal Indian law. Well, guess what? It's a steep learning curve. <laughs> if you go from, I don't know anything about the, the U.S. laws about indigenous peoples to this is a key part of the CRT movement. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to have to learn all this stuff. It's okay. So you like you can't even. There's no operating in a black white binary. You got to know all sorts of stuff about Latinos, Latinas. You got to know all sorts of stuff about indigenous groups and various indigenous groups. So for example, I noted that the 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 the, the Lumbee tribe isn't federally acknowledged, but the Cherokee tribe, for example, is going to be 
Apache tribes going to be? So you're like, okay, well, what are the different ways in which the laws have operated to maintain white supremacy, not just against indigenous peoples as a big category, but in a more fine gray sense? So yeah. I say these things because the first idea is the CRT is that is that legal movement that we talked about. The second idea is how does that legal movement travel? And then here's the third sense. The third sense is what I call the culture war sense. <laughs> and it's so capacious and it's so amorphous, it's nearly impossible to define. So I'm in fact going to read a quotation that gives you an idea of what it is. But I note this because whereas I'm talking about making extended stays with text, I correspond with CR CRT uh, founding scholars so that I can understand them. I want to make sure we're on the same page and I want to misrepresent them. I take justice to involve accurately representing your neighbor. Um, and and, I, and these these movements, in my mind, are, are, are sacred things in the sense that they develop out of communal pain, mm. trying to understand how is it that we are subordinated, subjugated, yeah. oppressed, exploited, etc. Again, my family from, from Boricua are still a colonized people. We <laughs> U.S. is going to be telling you all about the Revolutionary War. We can't have taxation without representation. My whole life, mi gente down in Puerto Rico have had taxation without representation. So these these are movements and efforts to understand the world that are coming out of pain. And, and as such, I'm like, okay, I really want to be the sort of person that can enter into the sufferings and the sorrows of others. But note how that's going to contrast with what I'm going to now read. This comes from journalist uh, Christopher F. Rufo, oh, man. who is he's all about taking down <laughs> CRT and square quotes. But just listen to this. He says, we have successfully frozen their, their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under the brand category. So he's, he's telling you, like a Lee Atwater, who we'll talk more about uh, next, next time we're, we're talking, he, he was one of the strategists for the Republican Party that constructs the Southern, Southern strategy. strategy. Right? This is, he's just like Lee Atwater. He's like, yeah. let me tell you what we're doing. Here yeah. comes the next part. I mean, it, it, he's not hiding any of it. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Yes, it's the weaponization of CRT. Correct. But but notice, like, there's no he's not telling you anything about the legal movement, broader nope. history. He's like, everything is gonna sound crazy. Yep. I want to have lumped under CRT. And the truth is, because of how various platforms work, because of how how um, like speaking circuits work and who's got time and so forth. Well, this is exactly what's happening. Yes. Mm -hmm. This so, is, this is so the same than, thing that like communism was used in the 50s and 60s and 70s like this, right? That's exactly right. And now yeah. communism isn't the scary boogeyman because the Soviet Union's fallen and China's China. So now it's CRT. Yeah, that's one of the main things that's going on. And, and notice, though, CRT gets lumped in with Marxism, cultural Marxism, yeah, communism, yeah. socialism, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and let's be honest, if you talk to most people, and you say, okay, so you're opposed to you're opposed to Marxism. Well, which school of Marxism? They go, right. well, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I'll say, well, you you know that no CRT scholar fully endorses Marxism, especially what we might call classical Marxism. So Marx own views, because Marx is an Aryan white supremacist <laughs> who doesn't want to center race reflection. Right. He wants to have class as the central unit of analysis. Yeah. Well, there are what are known as class crit. Scholars, so they're, they're people in the CRT movement. They want to make sure that they don't lose sight of the importance of class, no doubt about it. But they're going to be like, oh yeah, Marx gets all sorts of things wrong. Mm -hmm. And even somebody who I, who I mentioned earlier, Cedric Robinson, his book, Black Marxism, it, 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 the, the final third of it's all about how the black radical tradition that I talked about Derek Bell being connected mm -hmm. to, every single one of the leaders ends up looking at Marxism and saying, 
here are some things that are good. Here's a whole bunch of stuff that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so Du Bois is one of his most important books, um, Black Reconstruction of America, written in 1935. <laughs> He's like, yeah, Marx could never have, given his analysis, given his presuppositions, have mm-hmm. anticipated that mm-hmm. enslaved people would be so important for reshaping the world, yeah. for promoting revolution. Mm-hmm. It just, it's, not po- it's not possible on Marx's yeah. actual conception of the world. So yeah. I, I say this because... Then if you, you know, when you get into broader things, what I, what I find is people are like, well, it's just, it's just, it's just critical theory. And you ask, okay, well, which critical theories do you think is shaping these people? And, mm-hmm. and, and what, what era of the, of, of the critical theory movement? And did you even yeah. know that the critical theorists folks, typically they're Jewish people trying to understand Nazi Germany racism. Yeah. So like, did you, did you see how racism is prevalent there? Like how might your relationships to their yeah. reflection on law and consciousness change if you realize yeah. That many of these people are are Jews trying to think through the horrors of Nazi mm. Germany, yeah. but again, there's just there's no broader awareness yeah. of, of of these truths, and people think, well, if I can just say it's CT, and since CT is bad, and CRT is bad, and now I'm done. Right. So, uh, so part of what part of why we're having you on is to, to help our listeners not fall for this this yeah. cynical strategy. It's of a dirty saying, trick. It's a, it is it's dirty, and it like. Like that, that quote is astonishing. It's astonishing in its like audacity. Yeah. Um, just to just to know that that can be a public strategy, mm-hmm. you know that it that is just like not. It's just no big deal. So it's super right. cynical, um, yep. and it bothers me. So anyway, so part of what we want to have you on is to is to helpfully complexify this issue for people so yep. that they don't end up dismissing something that would be so helpful for them and for their church and for their repentance, like something that would be so helpful um, by dismissing it because it sounds like that scary thing that, you know, that one article that I saw, you know, on the the one website told me not to read or not to pay attention to this stuff. Um, So, yeah. So I'm I'm glad you're spending uh, this podcast and the next one with us. everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. At the end of this uh, episode, I mentioned that um, uh, Nathan was going to join us for this episode and one more, but uh, just to be clear, that this has ended up being a four-part series. And so we recorded these conversations uh, a few weeks ago, and we're really excited uh, to bring uh, this whole series to you. Uh, so next week, is uh, Nathan is going to get into a history, a brief history of white supremacy in the United States, going through just facts, uh, just like stuff that uh, people said. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, so that's going to be a two-parter, actually. So that's over the next two weeks is a brief history of white supremacy in the United States. Um, and then, uh, then the fourth week of the series, we're just going to talk about why this all matters for the church, um, why, why it uh, makes a big difference in terms of how we minister and um, how we practice uh, leadership in, uh, in the church today. So looking forward to that. I hope you can join us for those. And um, yeah, like and subscribe, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it really does uh, help other people find the podcast if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, etc. cetera. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. 
You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.